Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past, present and emerging. As well as the Wathaurong people of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from our homes, but with help from the Australian Centre of the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Alex, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Simon Theobald. Hello. And Carolyn West. Hey. And this week, we are joined by one of our newest familiar strangers, Jared Sim. Jared is a PhD candidate at the Australian National University, and he is an interdisciplinary ethnomusicologist. And we'll get more into what that means later. Welcome to the show. Hello. Now, before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight into today's episode. So, Jared, first time on the panel. So we'd love to know, what are you thinking about this week? So these couple of months, I've been writing my thesis about the sonic aspects of an indigenous Taiwanese group known as Paiwan. And I've been grappling with writing about something as abstract as sound. This led me to think about the role of sound in ethnographies and how it translates into academic writing. What are your opinions? I might as well cut in straight with my stereotypical Ecuadorian bureaucrat joke. For me, it's the sound of shuffling paper. <laughs> Was that actually a thing for you, Alex? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, actually, it's funny you mentioned this. You just reminded me. There was something I was going to write about, and it slipped out of my thesis. Oh, I forgot what it was. about working in a bureaucratic office space? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of starting this, like, ASMR channel, just slowly shuffling paper. <laughs> No, it was actually quite interesting. So the particular bureaucracy I was studying had, it was very front facing institution. So it had to deal with a lot of people, people coming to them, looking for help, guidance, assistance, filling out paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. Now the old office they were in was quite kind of segmented with lots of different rooms. And so the little team that I spent most of my time in time with were 10 people and they often had music playing. They were noisy. They'd laugh, crack jokes. And it was a much more friendly and kind of accessible space. They also had a lot more people come and visit and ask for help. During my fieldwork, the whole department moved to this big new government office building. And it was one massive open plan office. So suddenly you had in the vicinity of 90 people in one giant room. And so suddenly you couldn't play music. You couldn't have as much laughter. You sort of like maybe could shuffle and like whisper to the person next to you. But even just a little bit of talking repeated across 90 people was huge. So everyone was suddenly a lot quieter. The whole office space became a lot less amiable. They also got fewer visitors, potentially because they're in the south of Quito. But even the way they sort of managed visitors changed. They weren't able to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. We'll get that sorted. Hey, um, Adrian, can you just like help out this person with the whatever? Suddenly it had to be very formalized. Take them aside. Speak to them in this spot. 
and it very much changed the dynamic of the office. What does that tell us about anthropology, Alex? What I found interesting and what lots of them reported was that when they moved to this bigger, more open space, which in theory should have made them more cohesive because you're a bigger group, they all said they felt more isolated. It's interesting. I haven't really thought about silence as like one of the sounds in inverted commas of fieldwork, but I guess in bureaucratic scenarios, the absence of sound is more noticeable than the presence of sound. In, in my paper, I argue that silence is a modality of sound and it does have its social and cultural efficacy. So for my first few months moving to the field during my field work, I came in hoping to ask a lot of questions about music and performance. But then a lot of my interlocutors were pretty quiet. They, they told me they weren't allowed to sing or dance or talk about music. They, they would call it celebratory. So I always wonder what's so celebratory about, um, you know, lemons or dirge for, you know, funerals and stuff. So they had to keep quiet for as long as they could. They had to stay indoors. They couldn't participate in any social events. So if I'm following, so they had to be silent. Was that, sorry, before leading up to the event or after the event? Or like the funeral was utter silent, utterly silent? They still could speak, but they weren't allowed to sing or dance. Mm, for what kind of time period? Like the day, the the event itself? The Usually after the wake, people would start conducting this, I call it a ritual. In Paiwan terms, it's called Mapulu, which is mm-hmm. where you refrain from stuff. And the time period kind of like, it depends on the individual as well. I heard from one of my interlocutors that it used to be for as long as three years, people just don't leave their house. So given this, you know, capitalist society we live in, we don't have the luxury of staying indoors for three years. So people do it for a week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month. Is the context for it, is it one of sort of like piety or like respect or what's sort of the, the motivations behind the silence and the lack of the singing and the dancing? I guess basically it's about piety. You are paying your respects to the deceased. So as the bereaved family, you refrain from participating in social events, which is where I argued that the, the, the bereaved have to be in tandem with the deceased. So for the Paiwan, they believe that there is a place you go to after you die. It's called Salem, which is not really heaven, not really hell. It's just an liminal space. Mm-hmm. So in there, it's oft, often described as being dark, silent, and apparently time is contemporaneous to all time. So we, as the longer that we stay silent, the more they feel at ease. The deceased, when they die, they're called Vatingan which basically means, well, it doesn't mean anything, it just means that you're dead. And then after they relinquish all their bonds of attachment to like, you know, relatives, those who are still in the world of the living, then they transcend into East Salem, which is when they are inside Salem. So as Vatingan, they're not in Salem yet, but the goal is to get to Salem, which is the dark, quiet space. And the silence helps with that. Yeah, because, you know, you kind of not interact with the deceased spirit. That's really fascinating. Silence is a way to, like, sever your social connections, but in the positive sense, like, on behalf of that person so they can go and be restful. I don't know, Simon, was there there sound in your field site? I mean, there must have been some. Yeah, everyone wasn't completely (laughs) silent. It wasn't like an usher's house or something. No, um, one thing... There's been quite a lot written about Islamic soundscapes because I think in some ways the 
things like the asan, the call to prayer. I mean, I don't know if you guys, I mean, maybe Jared knows, but I don't know if you, Alex, or you, Carolyn, have ever been in Islamic country, but the call to prayer is such a kind of omnipresent feature of the sonic landscape, you know. In, in Iran, it's a little bit different because it's three times a day, not five times, as is normal in most Sunni countries. But you, you just hear it here in the morning, you hear it in the evening, you hear it in the middle of the day. And in, in the Islamic Republic, it's like broadcast on television and on loudspeakers everywhere. And so you can't, you can't really escape it. You really feel the presence of like sonic iterations of piety. In a lot of countries, like I know in Egypt, they recently banned mosques from doing their own call to prayers because they said the quality was not good enough. So they now have to use like state certified moisons to provide the call to prayer at the right time and the right quality. It was recently an article I read like just the other day that said in Saudi Arabia, they've asked moisons to turn the sound down because it's considered to be too loud now. Have they gotten louder or have just sonic expectations for want of a better term have changed? Well, I think, I think in like somewhere like Saudi Arabia, sonic expectations have changed. And it's also part of showing Saudi Arabia's liberalization over the past kind of under Mohammed bin Salman, the, the new crown prince. Part of that is turning down the kind of the defined religiosity that it previously had and saying, you know, no, we're more in step with like Western notions of what religiosity should be like, which means that we keep the call to prayer at a kind of sonic minimum as opposed to making it so loud that it wakes everyone up. I mean, there's a beautiful metaphor there about like turning down Islam in order to try and fit in with the West. Yeah, it's, isn't it? It's great. Going off what we were just talking about, about like the changing in tones and who like controls public sounds and public call to prayer and comments about the quality, I think are really interesting because I think in general, as sort of like a global population, our tolerance of audio has actually changed with the rise of digital technologies and what we deem to be good quality audio versus poor quality audio and our reaction to that and how we feel about that has also really, really changed. And I also wonder how much our exposure, our collective exposure to better quality audio, to higher quality microphones and that becoming normalized in in our interactions with digital media and sound and how that infiltrates into these more sort of analog practices. Yeah, I, I also, I'm also thinking about lo-fi music and how there's a return to a lower quality, grainier sound. Mm. And I think there was a guy called Mark Fisher who talked about how we've reached the epoch of our time and now we're just going mm-hmm. backwards. Basically, he uses a lot of Derrida's ontology to talk about how we are currently being haunted by the past and that's actually something we want to move forward into a future. I guess we see this coming and going and with this obsession of capturing this lifelike quality of things before kind of almost like a regression back. Like you can see that in art movements as well, where during the Renaissance, there was a real big movement back towards capturing this Hellenistic lifelike version of the human figure. But then after that, we had you know, impressionism and post-impressionism and like cubism and all these abstract elements and kind of like taking everything apart again once we've kind of put it put it together. And I think, yeah, you're right in saying like in terms of audio, that's definitely happening with lo-fi music. Film photography is having a massive resurgence right now, even though digital technology in cameras and optics has never been like better. It's very interesting how we're kind of drawn to the opposite once we sort of achieve a certain level of maybe like perfection in... In a medium. Well, I'd love to keep this discussion going, but I think that's all we've got time for. I'm going to move over to Carolyn. Carolyn, what have you been thinking this week? 
Well, Alex, we actually got a question from one of our listeners this week, which is very exciting. And please, if you do have a question about anything that we talk about in the podcast, please feel free to email us or send in a comment on wherever you follow us. But this week, our question from one of our listeners was about fieldwork, which I think is a bit related to what we've been talking about already too, because we've all kind of been divulging about our related fieldworks and how specifically anthropologists choose the time frame and the scope of their research, perhaps what kind of forces, I guess, dictate how you approach fieldwork. So many forces dictate the time frame yeah. of fieldwork. Really practical ones sometimes, like just can't get permission to do something different. I, I don't know if people, I mean, maybe I haven't read enough ethnographies that talk about it in particular, but maybe people are talking about it. But I know, for instance, in my case, the choice of the city that I did fieldwork in, a product of that place where I had intended to do fieldwork originally was not possible. My second choice was like, you can't live with your spouse. So I went to the place that allowed me to live with my spouse and it ended up being the kind of geographical crux of the research that I did. I mean, I think it'll obviously be different in different countries, but I think you raise a really good point that I was going to talk about as well. The personal considerations that I think are often neglected when people talk about their fieldwork. Thinking about the time, for instance, the time frame of my fieldwork was largely determined in that I didn't want to be away from my partner for much more than a year. So I wasn't. And I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. But, you know, the old school vision of the anthropologist is you will go and you will be there forever. And by God, that woman will wait. (laughs) And it's always that woman, isn't it? Because the anthropologist is male. Always. I can relate so hard to this. Well, I I didn't have a partner. I wanted my free boat to go as long as I could. But I, I think, again, you kind of stipulated a year would be the best. And then I thought I could always go back again. Then COVID happened. Mm, yeah. I think that too, Jared. I can always go back <laughs> and now, yeah. Nope. COVID. <laughs> I wonder um, with COVID though, and um, digital platforms now like Zoom and things being so much more accessible than they were previously, has that changed your attitude to field work in terms of like, you can't go back there, but you can still talk to your informants and stuff and check in that way, right? Well, I think for me, as someone that does research in sound and mm. sensory ethnography, it's it's very different talking to someone through, you know, social media and stuff. Because I have to admit, I'm not that fluent in Mandarin. And usually when I communicate with my interlocutors, there's a lot of body language and gesturing going on, which also affects the way they would respond to me because you know sometimes you think I'm like a performing monkey and then they kind of <laughs> they kind of loosen their guard and they speak more freely as compared to like you know texting you everybody always misinterprets and misconstrues the tone of your message someone just needs to like set yeah. you up in the corner of a room on a laptop just so you can be there also I don't know how you guys have found this and maybe this is because I central to my work is an academic economic construct most of the people I talk to in Ecuador don't hugely want to talk about that online via WhatsApp or whatever. Which they just want to talk about, talk shit, you know, which is good and totally fair. And like, that's again, catching up with their friends, but it has, at least for myself, mm. yeah, the, it's what they do for work. They don't want to talk about it in their personal time. They want to talk about other stuff. It's really interesting you mentioned that, Alex, because I was just going to say it's, I've been thinking about this and it's kind of like a tangential dilemma, but I wonder if digital ethnography kind of shows it, highlights the kind of salient elements here a bit more, is the fact that asking your interlocutors about things that you think are important versus them talking about things that they think are important. And quite often the two don't match at all. 
and you'll be asking questions, you know, like, what are you like trying to write an article or something? And you're like, what does this mean? What is this thing? What does it mean to you? What does it mean in your life worlds? And people are just like, I don't know. It doesn't mean anything. Let's talk about something more fun. And yeah. you end up with a situation where you're like totally at cross purposes. And yeah, I can only assume that's even more pronounced when you, mm-hmm. I mean, that would be my experience. It's more pronounced when you're talking on like digital media. I guess this goes back to what we were briefly discussing earlier in terms of space kind of dictating how sound is used and what sound is used and how much talking is done in the context of the talking and like you're totally right Alex in saying that when you're whatsapping people like people aren't necessarily like in a mode to like be interviewed in that manner you know and it's the same on zoom it's like zoom is much more of like it feels like more of a business a place where things get done as opposed to just like a place where you can hang out with friends like I spend all of my work day on zoom the last thing I want to do is hang out with my friends on this platform too so it's interesting that as much as yeah it's like it is a different space like the digital spaces compared to like personal space there's still those modes that dictate what people like to do and speak about and the sounds that they like to make on those platforms yeah I mean that's why the entire ethnomusicology discipline is in shambles right now we're all trying to figure out what to do how to conduct ethnomusicological field work in a digital age then the idea of bimusicality which basically means you learn the music of your interlocutors so that's mm-hmm. kind of like a fundamental aspect of ethnomusicological field work research and if you can't do that then how are you going to write a paper on something that you don't have a you know, like Simon said, you need a visceral kind of hands-on knowledge of how things work, how music sounds, how to handle an instrument, how to make an instrument. And mm. you can't do that digitally. Also, digital communication always feels much more purposeful to me. And I imagine that must really overlap with musical field work as well. Because rather than people just kind of spontaneously producing music, it would be so much, so can you play that song for me that is very meaningful mm. to you? please which entirely rips it out of its context no i don't i assume people don't even do that for field work but like i can't even imagine i think because we can't read each other's nonverbal communicative skills or cues sorry as well there is kind of like this weird thing with digital technology where you do kind of have to like facilitate the conversation more than what you would in real life there's less room for spontaneity almost you need to kind of like pre-prepare and arguably over-prepare for everything and every possible scenario and how you mitigate that. I think I don't want to like shit all over digital ethnography because I think it does have its own place. And I think that I think even though there are challenges, there's definitely a productive moment here. Like there are things that we can learn and push forward and discipline and so on. But I was thinking about like if we treat anthropology not as like kind of necessarily a, a data-driven jotting down people's important sayings and so on, but something is more like co-productive. Tim Cole talks about anthropology's methodology as being about anthropology as, as being like a, about an education and you like positioning yourself as being the kind of the student in a relationship and as learning through that kind of thing. And I think that's incredibly hard to do having now taught students on Zoom. It's a really difficult thing to do. Like it's much harder than being there in being a kind of pedagogical situation where you get all the normative cues and stuff that you get from like a teacher and and you build rapport and stuff and that's a lot harder in a digital media and just the list just goes on and on and on. I think also um, like digital ethnography affords the ability to conduct study and collect data and research without participants necessarily knowing because some of it is very public. And of course you can only get so far 
with that without involving like a group of people in in <laughs> like direct dialogue but i'm not sure how i feel about that sometimes like whether it is like fully ethical to like observe people that aren't aware that they're being observed even though they're sort of like like posting inarguably of the most public space that you essentially could it's not very productive in the sense of it being sort of a a collaborative um collection of 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 an output i suppose it is very much more like that fly on the wall kind of outside looking in otherness kind of thing which i'm not sure i feel like it goes against so much of well at least like you know as someone who um like I do a few like undergrad subjects in anthropology and it goes against a lot of what we sort of like talk about in classes in terms of moving away from that and, and being more collaborative and, uh, and interdisciplinary and more considerate of everyone involved in like the research process. So yeah, but, it, but it's interesting that the internet and like digital tech affords its own sort of sense of um, niceties and sort of what is and isn't acceptable and morals and values as opposed to the real world because it doesn't feel quite as real yeah yeah but when you're in the field you also observe people without them knowing no then you mm. start scribbling everything in your notebook and stuff unless you actually show them after that by the way i wrote this about you <laughs> you're weird <laughs> that's, Hi. that's true you don't know me but like <laughs> This is you. But like you couldn't do you couldn't do like a whole like ethnographic piece on just people that you were purely observing like in the field, right? I mean, you could. What I would say is that there's often bar like a perfectly overheard conversation, which I'd honestly have trouble ethically publishing. Mm. There is sometimes a level of privacy exposed in digital stuff. Yeah, like overhearing people's conversations and it's like at what point does that exist in a digital space? Just because mm-hmm. it is public doesn't mean it should be public. I just, I th- I've been thinking about that a lot because I've been stalking ex-Mormons on TikTok for two months for a uni assignment. And they don't know that I'm doing that. I'm not talking to them. Like, I'm not allowed to anyway. It's part of, like, sort of our ethical thing within that subject. But, like, it is weird that I can produce and potentially publish a piece on people, on, on a group of people that I've just been, like, looking at, not even interacting with, not even liking or following, just revisiting every time in my own time very passively not engaging and i can write a whole piece on it and put it out in the internet and it feels weird in many ways it's cool but it's also weird (laughs) well listeners this is a digital piece that you are listening to publicly so feel free to cite and listen to us and we're releasing some transcripts soon so please keep an eye out but otherwise that's all we've got time for i'd like to thank simon Thank you. Carolyn. Thank you. And Jared. Thank you. And I've been your host, Alex. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can also find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Keep talking strange.